I need this book today, so I'm not putting it up there. Brothers and sisters, good morning. Today, uh, specifically because of our gospel reading that I have now right in front of me, today I'd like to focus for a minute on the virtue of humility. It's a virtue that I find myself preaching on again and again, and, and I probably will for the extent of my priesthood. As long as I'm alive, this virtue will be relevant. So I have preached before about how humility doesn't mean dramatically lowering ourselves. It doesn't mean an exaggerated sense of lowliness or meekness. Rather, humility means seeing the truth. That means seeing myself as God sees me. God cannot see you incorrectly. If he sees a certain characteristic of your heart, if he evaluates you a certain way, well, it doesn't really matter what you think. He's right because he's God. And actually, this is great news. How often do we undervalue ourselves and God raises us up? But for those times when we do over-evaluate ourselves, maybe uh, think a little too highly of ourselves, it's not that God has some desire to tear us apart, but he sees things truly, and his desire is always to bring us to the truth. Another way to say that is to say his desire is always to bring us to himself, the way, the truth, the life. This is the virtue of humility, seeing ourselves as God sees us. But it also, humility, entails seeing all things as God sees them. It's not just that we have to have a right, correct uh, picture of ourselves, but how about the person sitting down the pew from you? How about the U.S. government? How about, you know, uh, the status of a local business? Actually, we have to see all things as God sees them and to see ourselves in relationship to those things and to evaluate those relationships as God would evaluate them. That's a base and a foundation for making sure we understand humility. But there's one particular area I'd like to focus on today, and that is the church. In order to have the virtue of humility, we need also to understand the church as God understands her and ourselves in relationship to her. So what is the church? The church is not just a building. It's not just a collection of resources and people. In particular, the church is the continuation of the presence of Jesus Christ in the world. Let me say that one more time. The church exists in the world in time as the continuation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, I just talked about this at RCIA this week, when Jesus uh, was still living, still on the earth, but didn't visit yet every town, he commissioned and called to himself 72 people. He took those 72 and he blessed them, sent them out. And do you remember what they were able to accomplish? You heard this story before. I know you have. I've, I'm almost sure I've read it here gathers those to himself, sends them out, and they come back full, oh, amazed, full of wonder, full of joy. They say, Lord, even the evil spirits are subject to us because of your name. They went around doing mighty deeds, healing the sick, 
And they did all of that in the name of Jesus. And so, if someone had encountered one of those 72, they'd been sick, and all of a sudden, they're healed. By whose authority were they healed? They were healed by the authority of Christ. But how did they encounter Christ? They encountered, her, encountered him through her, through the church, the body of those he has called to himself. And so he exists still through the church, and rightly we call the church the body of Christ. As such, the church is both human and divine. Just as Christ is fully man, right? He had the sniffles occasionally, I would assume. Fully man. He was also fully God. He was divine and unerring. He made no mistakes. So the church is human insofar as she's earthly and made up of men who smell and sin and stumble. The church works in human ways and inhabits human places. She has hierarchy and committees. She types up forms and sends them out through social media. Ugh. Humanity sometimes is like that. But from the beginning, alongside her humanity, she also lived in her divinity. She was chosen by God for a divine purpose. Christ says to all the apostles, all those that he called to himself, he corrects them real quick and says, hey, wasn't you who chose me? This isn't me, uh, you know, receiving you and being humbled by it. Rather, I chose you. You're welcome, says Jesus. I chose you and have commissioned you to go out and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Elsewhere, he says that she has a divine purpose in that commission, that she works under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Christ, when he was still with the apostles, said, who do you say that I am? And when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And I bestow upon you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He breathed on the apostles when he had risen from the dead and said, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. And finally, as he was ascending to heaven with his final words, he said to them, Go out, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel. And behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. That was like a lot of scripture, all back to back. And before you get confused, you're not in a Methodist church. You are in a Catholic church. We still read the scriptures, and we know, we understand them in context together, do we not? Christ called people to himself. He gave them authority, authority to loose and to bind, authority to forgive sins, and to do all of that in truth. And finally, authority to go out and teach that truth to the world, to baptize them so that they could become a part 
of the body of Christ, a part of the church. This means that it is the church's divine prerogative to safeguard and teach the truth for all peoples, to present what's true, even if it's uncomfortable or if it's hidden, so that all people may benefit from it. The truth will set you free. This is a job that especially pertains to the realm of faith and morals. So, can I give you a for example? You're learning today, aren't you? Maybe you weren't sure you were going to learn today when you came in and the lights weren't on. This is an example. It is the church's prerogative to safeguard and teach the truth of the sacraments. The Eucharist, which we're about to experience and celebrate, appears as bread, appears as wine. But it's the church's job through all the ages to safeguard and to proclaim that once this bread and wine enter into the holy sacrifice, once the priest says the words of consecration over them, they are offered to the Father, they no longer exist as bread and wine. They become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And that is true. Regardless of how the world may feel about it, regardless of how people in the pews and Catholic churches around the world may feel about it, it's true. And this is the church's job to proclaim. I'll give you another example. Heaven, hell, and purgatory exist. And some people will say, well, I don't like the idea of hell. And those in the church will say, I'm sorry. <laughs> Nevertheless, it exists and persists in existing. These things which are objects of faith might be a little hard to comprehend, but the answer to their difficulty is not to dismiss them and say, well, such a complex thing, it must be inauthentic. Rather, the response to a difficult teaching is to humble oneself, to look towards the truth of the thing that God has provided and say, Lord, help my unbelief. The Trinity is an example of a mystery that requires a lot of humility. It is also the church's prerogative to teach and maintain morality and moral truths. For example, taking an innocent human life is never okay. That's simply true. And some may try to seek to find ways to justify it. Nevertheless, the teaching of the church the divine prerogative of Christ in the world maintains. This is the same of any of the moral issues that the church proclaims in the world, unpopular as they may be, because they are proclaimed by the church which, within which Christ abides, they are true. This is really important for us to understand. You with me? really important for us to understand because it helps to correct a misconception that the teachings of the church are an arbitrary list, uh, something put together by a group of lobbyists rather than the fruit of a divinely guided and chosen body that exercises real authority to teach the truth, not because it gives her some sort of power trip, but because the truth sets us free. And until we're free, until we believe and rest in the truth, salvation seems far away. This is a gift that God has given to you, to each of you, and to me.
Understanding the church in this way and understanding ourselves as individuals in relationship with the church is necessary for humility because the alternative, if I may read it to you from the gospel, the alternative is not to accept or trust the righteousness of the church, but rather to trust in the righteousness of myself. I don't know about the church's moral stand here, but do you know who does know about the church's moral stand? Me. I'm not so sure they know about this issue, but do you know who knows about this issue? Me. I don't know all this theology stuff, and I'm sure there's smart people in the church, but let me tell you what I know to be true. Jesus addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness. And because they were convinced of their own righteousness, it says they despised everyone else. It doesn't mean they had like a lack of affection for everyone else. Though, maybe eventually, it grew into that sort of hatred. Rather, it started as a simple, I'm right and you're wrong. And as long as individual souls maintain that posture, I'm right and you're wrong, they remain far from humility. The only thing that we can guarantee as far as righteousness is concerned is the righteousness of God. And the only institution that has been invested with his righteousness is his church. Not because it exists as some sort of political entity, but because he promised to be with it, that it would not fall, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. To that end, my brothers and sisters, be not like the Pharisee in the gospel who prayed to himself, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of humanity. I have this, I have that. I'm good at this, I'm good at that. I know this, I know that. I am an expert and I thank you. Everyone else is bad, but I am good. Amen. Not a very humble prayer. Rather, adopt the posture of the tax collector. A posture that I want to be clear with you, I am ever striving to adopt more myself. I'm not sitting and teaching from a high place. I want to be like him. Rather, like the tax collector, barely able to lift his eyes to heaven, because he knew of God's goodness. Trusting in him, he had the courage to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner though I am. Humility means seeing things as God sees them. May we all endeavor to adopt this posture of humility before God, before his church, for the salvation of the world. Amen.